Thank you, choir. It's an assurance to know that Christ will not leave us alone, that He's done all that was needed for Him to be with us and for us to be with Him, for He to abide in us and for us to abide in Him forever and ever. You know, this past week, a number of us have visited the hospital. You know, some of our members have gone in for different procedures. And the reason you go to the hospital is because something's not working right, or maybe you're getting a checkup, or maybe you have an injury or whatnot. So, you know, we've been visiting a number of people, and I'm, I'm happy to say that we've seen some really good results come through the procedures that were performed this week. But usually we go to the hospital, or we go to a doctor's appointment to uh, have an examination to see, you know, what is going on in our bodies, make sure everything's working properly, or if you're like... Jonathan and Tiffany, who recently had a baby, little, little Aubrey, uh, you, especially that first year of the baby's life, it seems like you're always going to the doctor's office. You know, I have three children. I think for the first five years, I just lived at the doctor's office where Celia took the kids just about every week, it seemed like, because there's always an appointment. And it, either they're sick or they just have a regular appointment to go in and just get a checkup. And you know what they do. You take the baby in to get a checkup. And the doctor, you know, they listen to the heartbeat, they, they take the measurements of the height and the weight, they see the coloring, and just kind of see how the baby's doing. And the reason the doctor does that is because the doctor knows, and the parents know as well, that once this baby was conceived and began to grow, that we should start seeing some signs of uh, progress, that there, there should be some milestones that are reached as this baby ages and, and time goes by. And so the parents go to all these doctor's appointments, subject this child to all these different shots, because the, the parents want the child to grow. And he, they want the child to make sure it just continues to progress. The point is that once, once something is given life, there's an expectation built into that that there should be growth. And this is true of every living thing. And it's also true of our spiritual life as well. You know, LifeWay, which, is, which contains the research arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, recently published results from a survey that was done to find, to find out characteristics of growing Christians. You know, we're always looking to measure different things, at least some people are. And so they did this survey, and they surveyed 4,000 people to see, you know, are there any characteristics that are shared among Christians across the board that would consider themselves that, that they're growing Christians. And this survey found that there were eight characteristics of people that, that said they were growing in Christ. And here is what they found. They said the eight characteristics are Bible engagement, okay, so they're reading, they're learning, they're hearing the Bible, obeying God and denying self, so there's this pursuit of God's will, Serving God and others, sharing Christ, exercising faith, seeking God, building relationships, and the last one is that there's this, there's this unashamed transparency among them. And so this is what the survey indicated, and there's probably others as well perhaps, but just like when a baby is taken to the doctor's office, the doctor looks for signs of progress, signs of growth. Because he knows that if there is in fact life in this child, there should be growth. 
And so as we look at our passage this morning in 1 John, he's not going to give us eight characteristics like the survey did, but he's going to give us three. And he's going to give us three characteristics of growth that he's actually been taking us along and showing us all throughout this book. And so as we get to the last chapter in 1 John, 1 John chapter 5, we're going to see three characteristics of growth if in fact we have life in Christ. So if you do not have a Bible this morning, we have a Bible in the pew in front of you, you're welcome to use. And as we read the scripture this morning, I want you to imagine sitting in an examining room. <clears throat> I don't want you to feel uncomfortable, I want you to feel comfortable. You know, this is a familiar place. I want you to imagine that you're sitting in an examining room, and as these scriptures are being read, I want you to hear these words as if God was speaking directly to you. And I want you to hear, I want you to hear the diagnosis as if you're hearing it from a, a friend, a doctor, that you know that the advice he's going to give you is for your own well-being and growth. And so listen to God's diagnosis through the pen of the Apostle Paul in verses 1 through 3. He says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. So in these few verses at the beginning of chapter 5, John is reviewing for us what he's been talking about all throughout this letter. He tells, us, he tells us that if we've been born of God, if we have saving faith in Christ, then there should be some things that are true of us. There should be some signs of growth. He tells us that one, we should believe that Jesus is the Christ. Two, that we should be loving the Father and loving other Christians. And three, we should be obeying God's commandments. Now I want you to see though that this, these characteristics of growth all sprout from being born of God. And you see it in verse 1. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ, has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of God. So, so to believe rightly and to love sacrificially, and to obey willingly, requires spiritual life. You have to have life to be able to grow. And so just like you know, a baby must be conceived before there are these expectations of growth, so too we as Christians, we, if we are, are to see these things happening in our lives, this maturity process happening, our love for God and others increasing, our desire to know who Christ is, our desire to follow God. These things are increasing in us if we have life, if we are born, born of God. And this parallel of spiritual birth with physical birth is one that both Jesus Himself used as well as John uses in this passage as well. And you may recall it in, an encounter that John had I mean, Jesus had with the Pharisee Nicodemus. And John records this encounter back in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I want you to listen to it as I read it. John writes that there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, 
We know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time in his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So Jesus uses this metaphor of childbirth to describe to Nicodemus how someone goes from being dead in their sin to be alive in God. But, but Nicodemus doesn't quite catch on to the metaphor yet. And then John, in 1 John 5, takes that, that image, that metaphor of being born physically and translating it to being born spiritually. He, and he drags it into his letter of 1 John as he writes these verses to us this morning. He tells us that we must be born of God if we are to pursue and grow in right belief, that we must be born of God if we are going to love sacrificially and see our capacity and ability to increase in that love, and that we must be born of God if we see God's commands as something we actually want to do instead of for them being a burden. And so friends, if you, if you do not have a concern for knowing who Christ is, right belief about Christ. Or if you do not have a, a love that is sacrificial and growing, or if you still see God's commands as burdensome, then you have good reason to just evaluate your heart and ask yourself, have I been born again? Do I have this life that John is talking about in this letter? Like we saw at the beginning, healthy babies grow. Once they're conceived and this life is produced, then growth happens. And so living things produce growth. And so we have to ask ourselves, have we been born again? Have we embraced the invitation that God extends to us through Christ to have spiritual life? Now if you have, then we know you will be growing in your concern for who Christ is. You want to know who Christ is. You want to grow in your understanding of Him. You want to love more sacrificially. And you'll see that love towards others. And you see God's commands as right and good rather than being a burden. That's the shift that takes place once you become a Christian. Now in the next few minutes, I want to, I want to speak to those who have been born again. Those of you who have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. In verses 4-12, through 12, those of you who are in Christ, we are, we are encouraged to uh, notice and overcome two threats to our spiritual growth. There are two things that can stunt or sabotage your spiritual growth. The first threat John talks about is the world. Now, I want us to think about the world in light of our environment, what we allow into our lives from, from around us and even within us what we allow in to our spiritual life. And the next threat that we have here mentioned is the threat of false teaching. And I want us to think about our diet, what we ingest, what we take in, what we believe 
Because we know, like we talked about earlier, going back to this idea of having a child, you know children thrive in certain environments and on certain diets. Okay, And I think John is saying, you know, if you want to grow in Christ, you need to be aware of two things. The first thing is the world. Look at verses 4 through 5. John writes, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now you may say, well, Ron, what is John talking about here when he talks about overcoming the world? Well, a a few weeks ago, we we addressed this when we looked at the second chapter of 1 John, and he unpacks what he means by the world. This threat that uh, can encroach and, and try to suffocate our spiritual growth. Look back, back with me to 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. This is what he says about the world. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And so as John moves into chapter 5, he says the way we overcome the world, the way we overcome the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of things or possessions, is that we must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And so we must have a, a substitute of our affection, a transfer of our affection from the things of the world to Christ Himself. And we talked about this in depth a few weeks ago, but I just want to summarize again. You know, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, is this idea of, of thinking that if I can just have this, whatever this may be, apart from Christ, if I can just have this thing, this person, this relationship, this status, this reputation, this position, then I'll have life. Then I'll be able to experience life the way it's meant to be experienced. It's this desire, this lusting after something other than Christ that will give you life. And then on the flip side, you have the pride of possessions, this idea of self-sufficiency, that I have all I need, and I don't need God, and I don't need others, because I have all I need. There's this pride that's welling up inside you because you have the position, or you have the prominence, or you have the possessions, and your need for God has been diminished. See, both of these things, these, this, this desire for what you do not have, and then this pride of what you do have can choke out spiritual growth. Both of these threaten our spiritual growth. And this is what John is referring to as the world. I want to read an entry from the diary of a man named David Brainerd. Now David Brainerd was a missionary uh, to American Indians in New York, New Jersey, and eastern Pennsylvania. He was born in Connecticut in 1718 And he died of tuberculosis at the age of 29 in 1747. Jonathan Edwards preached the funeral sermon and published the the diary which David had kept. And this is an entry on April the 28th, which is on a Wednesday. And this is what he says. And I think this entry, as I was reading it, for me it just summed up what John is talking about practically in this passage. How do we overcome the world by faith in Christ? Listen to what he wrote. 
He says, I withdrew to my usual place of retirement in great peace and tranquility and spent about two hours in secret duties. I felt much as I did yesterday morning, only weaker and more overcome. I seemed to depend wholly on my dear Lord and be entirely weaned from all other dependencies. I knew not what to say to my God, could only lean on His bosom as it were and breathe out my desires after a perfect conformity to Him in all things. Thirsting desires and insatiable longings possess my soul after perfect holiness. God was so precious to my soul that the world with all its enjoyments was infinitely vile. I had no more value for the favor of men than for pebbles. The Lord was my all, and He overruled all, which greatly delighted me. I think my faith and dependence on God scarcely ever rose so high. I saw Him such a fountain of goodness that it seemed impossible I should distrust Him again, or, or by any way be any way anxious about anything that should happen to me. I now enjoyed great satisfaction in praying for absent friends and for the enlargement of Christ's kingdom in the world. Much of the power of these divine enjoyments remained with me through the day. In the evening, my heart seemed tenderly to melt, and I trust was really humbled for indwelling corruption. I mourned like a dove. I felt that all my unhappiness arose from my being a sinner, for with resignation I could bid welcome all other trials, but sin hung heavy upon me, for God discovered to me the corruption of my heart. I went to bed with heaviness because I was a great sinner, though I did not in the least doubt of God's love. Oh, that God would purge away my dross and take away my tin and make me seven times refined. In this entry, we see the secret of overcoming the world. He says, I seemed to depend wholly on my dear Lord and to be entirely weaned from all other dependencies. You know, to ensure that you're not allowing your environment or the world to stunt your growth, you need to remind yourself of the gospel. You need to plug yourself into a community of believers that will encourage you to continue to look to Christ for your salvation in your life. The second threat to our spiritual growth is a diet of false teaching. In verses 6-12, through 12, this is what John writes. He says, This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men... The testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that He is born concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe God has made Him a liar, because He has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has the life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And you may recall that there was a group of people who were once part of the church that John is writing to that had broken off and they began to teach 
falsely about who Christ was. They begin to teach that Jesus was a regular man, and upon his baptism, the Christ came down upon him. And then as he went out through his life, the Christ did great works through the man Jesus. And then upon his death on the cross, the Christ left him just before he died. Because this heresy that would later develop into Gnosticism, this idea of the material world was evil, they had to figure out some way to deal with the incarnation of God without joining the Christ to the material too closely. And so they would say, the Christ came upon Jesus at His baptism and left right before He died. But John is writing to say, no, Jesus was and is the Christ. He is the Son of God incarnate. And the way He does that is He talks about three witnesses that confirm that Jesus is the Christ. And the significance of, these, of the three witnesses, we, we see all the way back even to the day of Moses, of Moses in Deuteronomy 19.15, where it is said that a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And so the three witnesses that John brings out here are water, the blood, and the Spirit. And here's what I believe John is saying. He's saying, I believe the water represents Jesus' baptism. And that Jesus did undergo, He went through the water, and upon that He was and dwelt with the Spirit, or filled with the Spirit, or the Spirit came upon Him, and His public ministry began. And then He went through the blood, which I believe what He's talking about there is He went through the cross, the death. And then He says, lastly, the Holy Spirit Himself is the one bearing witness to the person of Christ. And He is the one who shows us our need for Christ and the truth of who Christ is. And so these three bear witness on behalf of God the Father that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and in Him is eternal life. And then He says, very simply, if you have the Son of God, you have life. And if you do not have the Son of God, you do not have life. So John is telling us that God has provided these witnesses that can keep us from eating a diet of false teaching and having our growth stunted. You know, this morning, we have an appointment to see how we're doing spiritually. And just imagine yourself in that doctor's office being checked over and seeing, is everything working properly? Are you growing? Are you maturing? And that's the question we need to ask ourselves this morning. Are we growing? You know, are you overcoming the world? By your faith in Christ? Or is the world overcoming you? Are you feasting on the word of God? Or are you wasting away on the false teaching about who Jesus is? Coming from other sources rather than God's word. You know, this morning we're going we're gonna to partake in the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is something the church has been practicing since the first century. Jesus himself instituted it. And it's been carried on through the church ever since. You know, the Lord's Supper is for those who have been born again. And for those who have publicly acknowledged Christ through baptism. 
Now, if you have not placed your faith in Christ, then I invite you as we enter this time of partaking of the Lord's Supper and remembering who Christ is, what He has done, and what He will do at His second coming, I want to invite you, if you're not in Christ, to use this time to reflect upon what Christ has done and to consider trusting Him, placing your faith in Him. If you haven't been baptized, I want you to take this time to consider you know, what, what is holding me back from visibly expressing my dependence and trust in Christ and identif identifying myself with God's people. You know, we see all throughout Scripture that God makes Himself known. All throughout the Bible, God is making Himself known. And not only is He making Himself known, but He is reminding His people visibly of His faithfulness. I mean, just think back. Noah, he reminds, he reminds Noah of his faithfulness by the rainbow. You know, he reminds Moses of his faithfulness through the tablets and through a number of different acts and miracles through him. Through the Israelites, God often reminded them of his faithfulness through maybe a stack of stones or an altar or perhaps by naming a place a certain, thing, a certain name, he would remind the people of his faithfulness. With David, it was the Ark of the Covenant, Solomon, the temple. When the Israelites were in exile, it was through the prophets. There was this constant reminder that God is faithful to His promise. God is faithful. And all these reminders, all throughout Scripture, find their terminus in the person of Jesus Christ. The ultimate representation of the faithfulness of God. And so that as we come today, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as the church has done for centuries... The bread and the wine, these symbols will serve as reminders to the faithfulness of God on your behalf through Christ and what He's done on the cross. And not only that, but that He will come again and He will complete what He started. He will ensure that the growth that He has started in you will be brought to completion. You know, the bread reminds us that the Son of God came in the flesh and dwelt among us. It reminds us that Jesus is both fully God and fully man and will remain in that state forever. So as you hold the bread this morning, you need to remember that the Son of God took on flesh and dwelt among us. And that His body was broken so that you could be made whole. And then the wine reminds us that Jesus gave Himself up to be crucified on the cross to suffer the death deserving of sinners so that we as sinners do not have to die the death of eternal or the eternal death, but rather we can partake of eternal life. And so as we come to the Lord's table this morning to receive the bread and the wine, I want us to examine ourselves. And I want us to do so as we read 1 Corinthians 11, 23-32. This is what Paul writes. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Whoever 
Therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who drinks, eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So I invite you as we enter this time that you would examine yourself. Are you born again? Do you have these signs of life? Have you identified with Christ and His church through baptism? And if so, we invite you to partake of the Lord's Supper.